Good evening again, King of Kings family. We're glad to have you with us. I'm glad to see faces here in the auditorium with me tonight, uh, to be able to see some of you in person, to be talking to a person, <laughs> as opposed to just the camera. Not that the uh, technical crew that we have are not people, but they're often uh, doing their roles and tasks. So it's good to have you here in the hall with us. Thank you for coming back. Great to see. Uh, we're glad that, again, as things begin to open up, we can welcome more of you to join us here in person at the pavilion. Um, I just want to welcome those that are joining us online. Uh, we, we do this from week to week uh, just to make note of how many people in our connected family as well as people around the world. Tonight we have people joining us from Australia, Belize, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Cyprus, Finland, France, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Malaysia, Netherlands, Philippines, Poland, sorry, Scotland, Singapore, Slovakia, South Africa, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So we welcome all of you tonight that are joining us virtually online. We're glad that you could be with us. Um, as you heard tonight, a few updates. This, this past week, uh, we had here in Israel uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is a solemn time here in this country as they remember the more than 6 million people that died in the Holocaust and remember that and are reminded of the importance of the existence of this nation uh, to be a place and a haven for God's people uh, here in Israel. And then this week, we step into uh, Remembrance Day, where we remember all of those that have fallen throughout the years that have defended and, and served this nation as it was being established and formed, and even to this day. And so Remembrance Day is Wednesday. And then on Thursday, as you saw the advertisement for the, the picnic, we celebrate Israel's Independence Day, Yom Hatzmut. And uh, if you can join us, we'd love to see you in person out at Gan Sacher, if you can be there. Um, let's see, one last announcement. So uh, if you've been counting, you know, this is the season after First Fruits after Pesach where we count the Omer, leading us up 49 days that lead us from First Fruits up to Shavuot. So if you're counting with us, today is day number 15 as we look forward to Shavuot. Today is day number 15 as we're counting forward. And speaking of looking forward, we're beginning a new series tonight. And we're going to be talking about moving forward. The title of this series is Moving Forward. And we're going to be talking about moving forward. We felt like this was the right time uh, to begin looking and discussing how we move forward as we slowly emerge from the season that we've been in with COVID. And so we felt like this was a good time to start having a discussion and to talk through some of these things. Now, let me bring uh, a point here. It's, it's one thing to, for us to discuss moving forward when it's a continuance of something that's already in motion, uh, to progress with, with momentum. Uh, it's something completely different to talk about this, talk about moving forward when, when you're coming from a state of rest. If you've ever tried to move a car... <laughs> It's much easier if you're on some sort of a slope, especially a downward slope, and you can take the brake off and the car can begin to roll a little bit. And you have some momentum and it's easier to get it moving. But if it's sitting on a flat surface, if it's still, to get it 
to get it to move is a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort to get that vehicle to begin rolling. So these are two different, different ideas. And I would venture to guess that all of us have experienced a time in our life, if not more than once, where things came to a halt or maybe even to a screeching halt where we have lost momentum or we've lost forward motion. Uh, maybe you've had an illness that incapacitated you for a period of time and you just, everything came to a stop and any momentum or any, any forward motion just seems to cease as other things begin to take priorities. Maybe a family emergency uh, that requires a shift of priorities. It just kind of brings everything to, to a halt and it, it refocuses us. Um, or maybe your country uh, goes into a period of lockdown. <laughs> maybe you've experienced that. Anyone here? Yeah, raise your hand, right? Uh, maybe your country goes into a period of lockdown and some things come to a stop. And Oftentimes when these situations happen, uh, we have to put certain things on, maybe an indefinite pause. Some things may have to be put aside entirely. Um, I mean, that's happened, I think, in, in the business world. Some people had to just give up on a, a business because it's just not able to sustain it any longer. Um, and, but the point is, during these times, we can, we can lose momentum. And so... As things begin to change, as we see the light at the proverbial end of the tunnel, as we would say, looking forward, we start to see the end of the tunnel. We see the light there. And as we begin to consider some of these things that we have, may have set aside, uh, it's many times at that moment where we begin to ask our, we ask ourselves a few questions. We begin to reevaluate our future plans. Uh, we begin to evaluate our priorities. And maybe even we begin to evaluate our convictions. And if you're like me, you may have an internal conversation with yourself. Anybody talk to themselves? I do. I ask myself lots of questions. I have internal conversations. And you may begin to ask yourself questions like this. Where do I go from here? Where do I go? You, you may ask yourself, where do I even begin? Um, sometimes when things be, are overwhelming, we can ask that question. Where do I even begin? Do I have the energy, the time, the strength to get moving again? Is it, is it even worth it? You may have even asking. Now, these questions can be three things. They can be challenging. Uh, because when things change, uh, when things come to a halt, and, and it feels like it takes effort and energy to get things, it can be a challenge to begin to consider moving forward. They can be confusing. I don't know if I feel the same way that I felt before. Uh, I, I don't know if my, my, maybe my priorities have shifted or changed. So I feel a tension now. Do I want to go forward? Do I want to continue going in that direction? Maybe they can feel overwhelming. We can feel paralyzed, feel like you can't move. Uh, again, when you feel overwhelmed, it, it can just paralyze us. We don't know where even to start. We don't know where to begin. So in this series, uh, we're going to take a look back in the history of Israel at a time when the people of Israel had just come out of more than 70 years of lockdown. Um, it was a time when they faced many challenges as they began the process to recover things that had been lost and to rebuild things that had been destroyed. And they faced many challenges. Now, again, I'm not going to compare <laughs> the 
season that we've just been through to going into captivity in a foreign country because there's no comparison between the two things. But I believe there are lessons, there are principles that we can glean and we can learn from the lives and from the history that's given to us. We can glean things as we consider how we begin to think about moving forward. But before we get to our text tonight, let me give you a brief historical background. I've found myself recently being more and more interested by history and reading uh, historical biographies, and I've been really enjoying it just to, to learn about things from the past and try to understand what was going on in the culture of a time. So let me give us a little primer here as to where we're going to be starting in our text tonight. So about seven, between 740 and 732 BCE, um, people in the northern kingdom of Israel... At that time, the kingdoms were divided. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So people in the northern kingdom of Israel started to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and they were taken into Assyria. And over the next 10 years, uh, there are continued struggles uh, with the Neo-Assyrian Empire until finally the ruling city at that time of Samaria falls, and after a three-year siege, and then... The, uh, the people were really finally at that point taken fully into captivity from the north. But during that time, the southern kingdom in Judah, centered here in Jerusalem, was, remained unmoved. And then about 50 years later, in 605 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. And the result is the king at that time, Jehoiakim, he is forced to pay tribute to Babylon, which he refuses to do. And this leads to another siege and to the death of the king, to the death of Jehoiakim and the exile of then his successor, King Jeconiah, and his court and many others are then sent into exile in 597 BCE. And then a second and a third deportation come over about the next 15-year period as continuous struggles and, and, and then finally all of the people in Judah or majority of the people in Judah are exiled into captivity in, in Babylon. Now, during this time while they're in captivity in, in Babylon, the balance of power in the world shifts. So the world around them changes. And the power that was held by the, the Babylonian empire shifts to the Persian empire. And we have a shift in the world of a center of power. And then we come to King Cyrus, who issues a decree uh, to allow the exiles to return to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple. And he was kind of selfish in his motive because he wanted them to go pray for him and for his, his rule. But I, I, it's kind of smart, actually, if you believe God is God. Yes, hey, please go back and rebuild your temple and pray for me. Um, because again, things were, were in a flux. And, and he, the Persians had come into power ruling the world. And so that brings us Sorry, one second. That brings us to the first return. And the first return is led by a man named Zerubbabel. They called him Zerubbabel the prince because they thought he was a descendant or he was a descendant of the line of King David and also Joshua the priest. And they bring the first exiles back to Jerusalem in 538 BC with the intention of rebuilding the temple. 
And they begin the work, and they begin to rebuild the temple, and it's finally completed uh, in 516 BC, about 70 years after it had been destroyed. And that brings us really to the time period of, of the people we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah tonight, but the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were really written, and they're collected as one book in the Hebrew Bible. It's a collection of accounts of the return. And so Ezra deals with the accounts of the first return and then it brings it into his own story. Um, he was a scribe. Ezra was a gifted scribe and a priest. And he returns to Judah with exiles in a second wave in about 458 BC. This is about 58 years after the temple had been rebuilt. So about 58 years pass since Zerubbabel and the temple is built. And then Ezra comes and by the time he gets there, by the time he gets to Jerusalem, the initial excitement of the temple having been rebuilt is worn off. And things have settled in. And things have deteriorated. Now the temple was rebuilt and the sacrifices had been restored. But, and there was opposition. There was, there was uh, opposition to them doing that. But the city walls of Jerusalem remained unbuilt. They remained in ruins. And so this is where we step in with our main focus, our primary character tonight that we're going to be looking at in Nehemiah. He comes, or at that time, again, Ezra had brought some reforms, but the, the city is still not at a place that Nehemiah would hope it to be, and we'll see that in our text. Now, Nehemiah, just to give you a little bit of background on him, he was a, man, a Jewish man. Had take, he was born outside, born in his exile, and was serving the Persian king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, he was a cup bearer. I was looking at uh, a uh, commentary about his role because for me, when you think of cup bearer, you think of almost a, a position of slavery. Uh, you, you think of someone who is in servitude. But actually, a lot of scholars believe that his role as cup bearer was more like a cabinet level ministry role. Um, I remember one commentator said uh, in US politics, they'll use a common term in, in a title. So for instance, we would say something like secretary of state, secretary of defense. Now, the first word secretary would imply a common work. It would require, it would imply taking a dictation or something like that, but that's not what the role means. And he thinks, this, this commentator believed that cupbearer, although it implied something common, it was actually a very prestigious role, a cabinet level or a government level role in the government of the king. And he was respected uh, in his role, like Daniel was. The character of Daniel was respected as a leader in the Babylonian kingdom. And as far as we can tell, uh, he was not a slave to the king, but he was highly valued by Artaxerxes. He was really valued. In fact, as we'll see in our text, Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah, how long are you going to be gone? <laughs> when are you coming back? I don't want you to be gone too long. I need you here. And he is later appointed as a governor of the region of Judah. So this is not someone, again, that you would think is just uh, a, a slave in servitude that has no authority or no rank in the government. So let's, let's turn to our text tonight, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have your Bible, open it. If you have your phone, open it. And let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. And it says this. 
During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. So again, here's the state that we enter in as to what's happened post-exile. And I want to make a few notes here about what we just read. These, these men come from Judah to the fortress city, and it's just before winter time. So they probably made their journey intentionally to arrive just before winter sets in. But notice that, that Nehemiah doesn't say that they offered the information. It doesn't say that they arrived and then they gave a report. It says, if we read it again, it says, they arrived with men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant. And this wasn't a passing interest. This wasn't a hello question. Hey, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, how, how are things going? That politeness that we often do. This was intentional. Nehemiah was intentional. He questioned them about what was taking place. He wanted to know what was happening in Judah, in Jerusalem. He was paying attention to what God was doing. We're going to see that here. And the question I asked myself as I read this was, why does he even care? He's a government level person. He's probably got a great job and a great retirement plan and everything laid out for him. Why? Why? Why doesn't he care? I mean, it's been 50 years at this point, probably since uh, the exiles returned. You, you know, what does he, what does he want to know? Uh, maybe he couldn't have left with them. Maybe he could have, but at this point he hadn't returned with them. Um, but I believe the reason why he wants to know is because Nehemiah was a man who read the word of God and he was a man who believed the word of God. And we see that in the next few passages. He believed that what God had prophesied through Moses all the way back after, the, after their exit from Egypt, he believed that God's words spoken through Moses were true and that God was going to fulfill his word. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 30. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I am giving you today, then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the ends of the earth, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply, and multiply you more than he did your fathers. So why do I believe Nehemiah believed these words? Because he quotes them as he begins to pray to God. Listen to this. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. Please remember, Lord, what you commanded your servant Moses, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen my name to dwell. Nehemiah knew the word of God. And he knew what God had promised through Moses regarding the return of his people. And that's where the interest was. God, are you finishing it? You see, again, the people had returned, not completely, but in part. The temple had rebuilt, but something wasn't done yet. And he, he was, he's questioning, God, where are we? What's, what's happening? And he wants to know. He, he's questioning these men to understand what is the situation. So, our first thing that I want us to glean tonight as we consider moving forward, as we consider, we ask questions of ourselves, where do, where do I begin or where do I go from here? I want us to take a lesson from Nehemiah. I want us to go back to what God commanded. I want us to go back to what God promised. So in those moments where we don't know, what's the first step? How do I go? Let's go back. What did God command? What did God promise. God had commanded that the people should return to the land and obey him with all their heart and soul by doing everything he commanded them through Moses. And the exile, they had started to return and, and a reform took place under Ezra. If you read the book of Ezra, he, he brought the people back into being obedient to God's word and his law. But God had also promised that he would restore their fortunes, regather them in the land of their fathers and cause them to prosper and multiply more that he did their fathers. And at this point, that wasn't real. It was almost as if the process had gotten stuck. It, it stopped, lost momentum in a way. So again, when we're faced with these kinds of questions, where do we begin? Where do I go from here? Let's first go back to what did, what did God command us? Let's go back to what did God promise? Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's pay attention with great intent to what God is doing regarding his promises in the world around us. That's a great place to begin. Now, backing up a little bit to verse four, because we just moved on into Nehemiah's prayer, but I want to back up a little bit to verse four of Nehemiah chapter one. And we want to see how Nehemiah reacts to this report that he received. And let's read it in verse four, chapter one. When I heard these words... I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we see that Nehemiah was moved, even moved to tears and fasting and praying concerning what was taking place with the remnant that had survived and were living in Judah. It moved him deeply. And he begins fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. We'll come back to that in a few moments of what he did after. But I want to talk about why he was moved. Because again, based on God's promise, Nehemiah had envisioned something much different for his people than what they were currently experiencing. Again, in verse five of Deuteronomy 30, he will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers. The report that he heard was not in agreement with this promise. And that caused the tension. Caused the tension in Nehemiah. What's, what's stuck? What's, what's going on? And he becomes consumed 
with what I call, a, what I'm calling a holy discontent um, regarding the situation in, in Jerusalem. He, he becomes consumed with, I, I have to do something. And he begins, as he said in his own words, he begins to pray and fast and weep. And he seeks the Lord. And this is our second thing I want us to catch tonight is being motivated. Once we look back to the promises and the commands of God and then we look forward and we see or we sense what I, what I call a gap between what God commanded or what God promised and the reality around us, let us move that to a place of holy discontent. When you see that there's a, there's, well, God, you said this, and, and God, you commanded this, but this is the reality, and there's a gap between this. Let that be something that moves us. And we're going to talk about where that should move us first, but let that be something that, that motivates us. We can see this in the story of Yeshua. Uh, as he goes into the temple, as he comes into the city of Jerusalem before Pesach, and it's recorded in John chapter 2. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but this is what it says in John chapter 2, verse 16. He told those who were selling doves, they, were, they had turned the outer courts of the temple into a marketplace. And he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Yeshua was consumed in that, con it consumed him and it motivated him. And we're going to talk about this. And he refers back to what's prophesied in Isaiah 56, verse 7. The Lord's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But that's not what happened. You see, where they were selling was the outer courts. And so they had turned the outer courts into a marketplace which actually restricted the non-Jewish people from coming into worship. So it wasn't truly a house of prayer for all nations. And this, this gap between the two things consumed Yeshua. This isn't right. And, and he gets consumed and he gets motivated. So I'm, we're talking about motivation now. This is what motivated him to action. Now, I, I want us to understand and I'm not referencing this about Yeshua because I think we need to go and create whips and start turning over tables. I think we're going to talk about where this motivation should lead us in a moment. We'll get there in a minute. But I want us to see that it, it consumed him, it motivated him, and as did the report mo consumed Nehemiah. What motivates us is an important thought. I was reading recently a book on motivation <laughs> and because uh, I need motivation. So <laughs> I was trying to find <laughs> motivation. No, I was reading a book about motivation and the author of the book was, was talking about um, how different needs for us. So for instance, if I have an abundance of food, I'm not motivated by hunger. There's, there's not a high motivation for me to go searching for food. If food is in abundance, if I have a pantry full of food, I don't feel the urge. I don't feel the motivation for that. But if I am lacking, everything changes. Everything flips and my motivations change. And what motivates us is important. I want to read to you an article I read many years ago, actually, by David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, a pastor and an author. And he wrote this. Listen to this. He said, 
whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. And again, this was probably 15, 20 years ago. So um, you don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it actually becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of the conditions about you, in you, or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow. The agony of God's heart. And he said this, all true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for the Messiah comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church or into his people. He would find a praying man and take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? And he says, now, folks, look at me. (laughs) Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man, but he was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish, no weeping, not a word of prayer. So this is a powerful thing when we feel that tension between God, this is what you said, but this is what I see. We feel that gap and there's, there's something there. This is a powerful force that can, we feel the heart of God and his, his concern for creation and what he desires for us and, and what's resisting it. And we sense that and we can use that to motivate us. It can motivate us. It can be something that motivates us forward. It should be something that motivates us. Now, Where it should motivate us is what we see in Nehemiah. Let's continue back in verse five of Nehemiah chapter one. This is Nehemiah, after the report, praying to God. And he said this, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinance you gave your servant Moses. Now, I want us to note something here. This motivation moves him to pray. It moves him to fast. It moves him to seek the Lord. And in this process, he's asking God for mercy. He's repenting. God, even my family, we we haven't been faithful to you. Forgive us. We've acted corruptly. Teach us. Lead us. But I also notice where he positions himself. He, He considers himself the servant of the Lord. He keeps God in that rightful place. He was the king of, he was the servant of a king. But that wasn't his first priority. He was the servant of the most high God. He understood his rightful position in in regards to God's authority. And 
the authority of the king that he served. He kept things in right perspective. For me, this is always where the Bible teaches us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's keeping God in that rightful place. That's the beginning of making wise choices is, God, you're God, and you're there, and I don't dare allow myself or any other person to step into your authority. I am your, as Nehemiah said, I am your servant. And as we consider prayer, I want us to think about, again, moving forward, we, we look back, we allow those things to move us forward, and we come to God with a heart of prayer, I, I think this is the place we need to come is, Lord, your servant is listening. What would you have me do? This is the attitude of which we approach prayer. I was reminded of uh, the story in the book of Samuel where Eli has taken Samuel in. He's a young boy and God calls Samuel in the middle of the night and he keeps going to Eli and saying, hey, I'm here. What do you, what do you, have? What do you want? <laughs> He said, I didn't call you. And after about the third time, Eli says, listen, the next time you hear the voice, just stop and say, Lord, your servant is listening. I'm here. And I, I think it's that same attitude. God, I'm listening. I'm paying attention. This is what Nehemiah was doing. He was watching. He's paying attention. And he comes to God in prayer. He's motivated to come to God in prayer and say, God, your servant is here. I'm listening. He continues on in verse 11. Lord, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Now, Pastor Chad's going to be continuing on in the series and he'll look more at what happens uh, after this prayer as Nehemiah goes before the king or is in the presence of the king. Sorry, one second. Yes, I'm good. Thank you. Um, but ultimately, what we see here is that Nehemiah realizes his role as a servant to the Almighty God, and he, he says, God, I'm here. And he believes that God has positioned him in a place to be used by God to get this process unstuck, <laughs> okay? To get this process unstuck. And he realized something needed to be done, and he had the ability to do something. I was reminded also of something from the book Experiencing God written by Henry Blackaby that we, we've used in our, our discipleship times. And he quotes this, he says, understanding God's plans for the world around you is far more important than telling God what you're planning to do for him. Let me say that again. Understanding God's plans for the world around you is far more important than telling what God what you are planning to do for him. So when we come to prayer, when we're motivated and we move to this place of prayer, prayer is not the opportunity for God to come in alignment with us. Prayer is not the opportunity for me to come to God and says, Here my, here's my list because here's what I'm going to do, God. Here's my list and here's what I need you to do, X, Y, Z. Prayer is our opportunity to come in alignment with God. Do you understand? That's where we begin. God, your servant is here. I'm listening. Yeshua told his disciples, God knows what you need before you even ask him. He knows. He knows what you need. He's not surprised because he knows where he's leading you. In fact, he knows better <laughs> because he knows 
where he's taking you. How many times do we hear Yeshua say things like this? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. My work is to do the will of him who sent me. And on and on and on and on. Now, many of those words he said publicly, folks. He said it in front of people. But do we honestly think that in his prayer time, he said something different? Do we think he came before God and said, yeah, God, I know what I said to them, but listen, God, this is what I need. Did he change? No, this was his heart. This was his attitude. Even in prayer for God, before God, God, I'm your servant. I'm here to do your will. I'm listening. I'm ready. So, are we praying with the intention of finding out how we can participate with God in his work? That's a big question. Are we praying? Are we being moved? And are we being moved to prayer? And are we asking God how we can participate with him? So tonight, as we consider, and again, we step into this series of the idea of moving forward. And we have questions like, where do I go from here? Where to begin? I want to remind us. I hope we can pick up these three things from the person of Nehemiah and they can help us. That we can go back. What did God command? What did God promise? And as we look at those things and we see there's a gap between what God commanded and what God promised and what's around us, that that would move us, that we would have a holy discontent in us that would move us to prayer, that would move us to seek the Lord and to ask Him, God, I'm here. I'm your servant. I'm listening. How can you use me to accomplish your purposes? Also in that book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby tells a story about George Mueller, who was a pastor in England in the 19th century. And he asked the question, how, how did George Mueller know and do the will of God? And this was his explanation. And, and let me read it to you. He said, I never remember a period that I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Ghost through the instruments of the word of God, but I have always been directed rightly. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not patiently wait upon God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the word of the living God, I made great mistakes. And in these words, we see these three principles. When we're faced with questions, where do we go? Where do we start? How do we, how do we begin again? Let's go back. He went back to the Word of God. He went back to God's Word. Let's study through God's Word and look for insights from the Holy Spirit. That's a great place to start. When we experience or when we sense a gap between what God commanded and what God promised and the reality around us, let us be moved to action, a holy discontent. And then third, let's let those motivations move us to prayer and seeking God with the attitude of being His servants knowing that he will position us to be part of what he is doing in his plan for the world today. So let's pray. We'll close for tonight. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back out and close us in a time of worship. But Lord, tonight we are humbly your servants, God. We come before you, Lord, as, as Nehemiah did. Lord, we have not been perfect. We have not 
always done things the right way, but God, we are your servants. And Lord, we want insight and wisdom as we consider what is moving forward, God, that we want to come back to you, to come back to your word and to your promises. Lord, to be reminded of what you said you would do, what you said you are going to do and what you are currently doing. God, we want to be moved by the things that move you in our hearts. Lord, we want our hearts to be broken by the things that break your heart. Lord, we want to be, allow those things to motivate us in prayer, Lord, and in seeking your face. So again, I pray for each one of us tonight, Lord. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us hearts, Lord, that will long after you, Father, that will long after your purposes for us and let us come into alignment with who you are and what you're doing. We ask this in the mighty and powerful name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.